This is a Federal News Network podcast. Middle-aged Generation X employees are overrepresented in the federal workforce. Gen Zers are underrepresented relative to the composition of the workforce in the private sector. That's according to the Partnership for Public Service. Researchers there find that the two generations also want different things from the workplace. For instance, the kids of Gen Z want telework flexibility and the latest technology. Gen X fogies want better work-life balance and more time with family. Still, agencies do have other incentives that might appeal to both generations. For details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with the partnership's senior manager for federal workforce research, Paul Peach. I think what's going on here is a reflection of the federal sector, the federal workforce, um, trending older than the private sector workforce. That's been a conversation that has been going on in federal circles for a long, long time. And currently, as of February, this past February, uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission put out a report that found that 72% of federal employees are over the age 40, whereas only 54% of workers in the private sector are. So I think that really underscores how much older the federal workforce is than the private workforce. And this is a problem, of course, because within the next two years, I believe, it's estimated that 30% of the federal workforce will be eligible to retire. Now, people are retiring at a later age. They're retiring older and older, but nonetheless, more and more baby boomers and some Gen Xers are starting to retire. So when there's an older workforce and uh, that workforce is approaching retirement and there is an underrepresentation of the next generation of federal workers, the Zoomers, that's a problem. Now, in terms of Gen Z, 1.6 of the federal workforce currently is made up of Gen Z. And compare that to 9.1% of the overall uh, U.S. labor force. So big difference there. But I, I think it's important to remember that in 2021, um, only about 31,000 federal workers out of a workforce of 2.1 million, I think it is, are, are Gen Z. So it, it's a small proportion, and, and that number, that percentage, can fluctuate much more than, say, the percentage of Gen X or millennial or even baby boomers. So that's something to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that the oldest Gen Zer today, according to the CHU Research Center, which was the definition we use for Gen Z, is 25 years old. So Gen Zers have been in the federal workforce for just several years. And I, I do think that 1.6% number will go up. And I think at this point, it's comparison to the overall labor force. It's a little hard to draw too much out of that because there are so many unknowns. But nonetheless, it is unnerving because as more and more baby boomers are hitting retirement and Gen X is approaching retirement, uh, we definitely need younger people coming to the federal service uh, to fill the gap and make sure that we have a federal workforce that's ready for the challenges of tomorrow. One thing from the report that you somewhat touched on, but I would love to dive into a little bit more. You said that Gen Z is under the age of 25 currently. So that means, and this is something that was mentioned in the report, that a lot of them have not experienced being in the workforce before the COVID-19 pandemic occurred. So can you talk a little bit about what that means for that generation of the workforce and specifically what that would mean then for agencies who are looking to potentially hire more people in that generation. It's fascinating, isn't it? Many people of the Gen Z generation did come into the workforce during the pandemic, and, and many are still working 
in a, a remote or a hybrid way, a, a way for older civil servants of uh, fine different, right? Not the usual way. So the effect of that, I think, remains to be seen long term. Immediately, I think we can say that for many younger federal employees, working in a hybrid way, working remotely, or working with workplace flexibilities baked into the equation is what's usual, what they expect. That is the status quo. And if it ceases to be status quo, that could present challenges. If agencies uh, decide to come fully back to work and to forego any remote work, any hybrid work, I think that could push some younger employees out of government to the private sector. And I think it could turn off other young people from considering a career in government or a career with a specific agency. So I think that is one thing to consider. Uh, the other thing to consider is that the young people we spoke with often described remote and hybrid work as an emblem of trust, of respect, that it showed that their leaders knew they could do the work and could do it without in-person supervision on a daily basis. And they valued that. And so I think that's something to keep in mind for leaders to keep in mind as we possibly go back to a more typical routine of in-person work that staff appreciate leaders who trust what they do, who respect what they do and give them agency and the room to succeed. And in the hybrid and remote environment, that became the norm of leadership. If we move back to an in-person leadership model, uh, I think it's important for leaders to keep those strategies in mind and to remember what really made their staff comfortable, secure, and productive during the height of the pandemic when we were at home and how those strategies can be implemented to the office place. So it seems like that is something that a lot of Gen Z employees are looking for in work. But as you mentioned in the report as well, that not every Gen Z employee is looking for remote work or they kind of appreciate the camaraderie of the office to some extent. And also not every federal job can be remote. So what else are Gen Z employees looking for in a job that other than remote work or telework flexibilities that might incentivize them to join a federal position. That notion of connectedness, of of being with people and being part of community, that is another big driver, especially for younger employees who have, although appreciated being able to work independently and remotely, have also often felt isolated or disconnected. And so there is that dichotomy of wanting the latitude to work remotely and flexibly, but also wanting a strong office culture, strong workplace culture. And of course, those two are not mutually exclusive. I think many agencies and companies in the private sector and nonprofits were able to figure out how to develop culture online through meetings, uh, formal and informal, um, and, and through uh, best practices of, of how we engage online. Um, and, and I think those can continue to be implemented as we're moving forward in a hybrid environment and even an office environment. In terms of other reasons why uh, Gen Zers would like to remain with the government despite the ability to work remotely, I would say the biggest uh, would be mission. And this is where Gen Z is no different than Gen X or other uh, generations in, in, in the public sector. Public servants are public servants. They uh, come to government service largely out of commitment to mission of their agency and out of wanting to give back to their country and to their communities. 
Gen Z, the difference with Gen Z is that already, and the generation is still defining itself, the generation has defined itself as a generation that wants to make a difference. There's a lot of altruism and there's a lot of know-how, savviness of how to affect change. And I think that's a function of growing up digitally. Young people coming to government, they want the ability to make change. They want to realize their goals that are aligned with their agency's mission. Like their older colleagues, that's what's bringing them to, to government largely. The difference is Gen Zers don't necessarily see a government job as a government career. And if they start a job with an agency, they don't necessarily plan to stay there or in government for 30 years. Um, in fact, they're probably more likely than their older colleagues to change jobs within government or even to leave government if they feel they can better meet their personal goals, their mission, so to speak, in another role elsewhere. So Gen Z, unlike other generations, doesn't solely equate government with public good. Many Gen Zers we talked to talked about achieving public good through the nonprofit sector as well as the private sector and are willing to uh, pursue avenues in those other sectors to uh, work towards their goals. So then what would you recommend to agencies who might be looking to retain some of the younger talent if they are looking to change trajectory in their career at all? Are there ways that agencies could incentivize them to you know, remain in public service or is that something that they should be doing? Uh, they absolutely should be doing that. They absolutely should be thinking about how to target the retention strategies towards younger employees. Staff retention, retention strategies are, are not one size fit all. Now, while things like financial incentives, like salaries and good leadership improve employee engagement and therefore help encourage people to remain in their role, it's important to think about the specific circumstances, needs and goals of specific populations of the federal workforce when designing retention strategies. And that was the impetus for this entire report. So something to consider is how leaders can work with their younger colleagues in a way that the younger colleagues feel engaged from the get-go, that they can see what they are doing relates to mission and is critical. And I think that's largely a messaging and a communication issue. And that's something that leaders should consider. Something else that is important for Gen Z is to feel they have a clear path uh, in federal government, that they can work towards the goals, as I mentioned earlier. And something that can be done there is to uh, develop career pathing tools, career mapping tools, if they're not available. And when they are available, to ensure they're current, to ensure that they're dynamic and usable. Uh, a career path at this point should not be a, a, a printout, a PDF, uh, but should actually be a dynamic website in which people can toggle different options and see where they might lead. But beyond that, leaders, supervisors, managers, even senior leaders can talk to younger staff and can explain, can describe their own career story and, and make connections and, and, and help them, the younger people, see what options are available for them. And that sort of encouragement, that sort of pushing them to think about their future, I think, uh, can go a long way to keep young, younger people in federal service instead of looking for opportunities elsewhere. So far, we've talked a lot about Gen Z and that half of the report, but the other half of the report that is also equally as interesting is Gen X employees and their role in government. And one thing that I found really interesting in the report was it said that in 2021, 
Civil servants that were 55 years and older make up 29.1% of the federal workforce, but 53.3% of the senior executive service. So in that sense, they're overrepresented, which kind of puts Gen X employees in this sandwich type position where you have people entering the workforce, but not enough SES positions that are available. So do you have recommendations to agencies for how to incentivize Gen X employees to stay if maybe they don't see a clear path of advancement for themselves? This is an interesting challenge, and it relates to what we were talking about earlier with uh, retirement ages growing older, people waiting longer until they retire. And so currently, many of the Gen Xers we spoke with described feeling frustrated because they're not seeing the vacancies in the senior executive service that they had anticipated there would be by this point. Now, at the same time, the Gen Xers we spoke with described this as a frustration and not so much a retention issue. And although I think it could be a retention issue for some people, I did not get a sense that it was going to be uh, a cause of massive attrition. Nonetheless, it is very important for leaders to consider and to think about how they can support their Gen X uh, civil servants in other ways to ensure that they are continuing to advance professionally and continue to develop leadership skills uh, so they're prepared to assume SES roles when they come available, but also uh, so they can continue to be good leaders and thought leaders outside an SES role. So there are several ways uh, that this could be done. One, agencies can establish a senior executive candidate development program if they don't already have one. And if they do have one, they can encourage their Gen X staff to enroll, to take advantage of the opportunity and to prepare for the SES. Agencies can also encourage their staff by not only telling them about these opportunities, but providing the time and and, and really urging them to take advantage of them, opportunities um, outside of the federal government, such as the Asian American Government Executive Network's um, SES program, the African American Federal Executive Association uh, program that that supports um, leaders, and even um, at the Partnership for Public Service, agency leaders who can encourage staff to take Uh, take advantage of these external resources, they should be keen to do so. Something else agency leaders should consider is to encourage Gen Xers and Gen Zers for that matter, to take advantage of details and rotation programs, uh, both within the agency and elsewhere. Uh, These are opportunities in which staff get uh, the chance to learn new skills, work with new people, develop new practices, new ideas, and by default, develop as leaders um, in any situation any employee is in that's new and that challenges them, they're going to develop leadership skills. So for agencies with details, internal details and in, in rotation programs, supervisors, mid-level managers, and senior leaders should really encourage uh, staff to take advantage of that. And managers and senior leaders should uh, reassure supervisors that they'll be supported in letting their staff participate in these programs. But interagency details should also be considered. Um, and this is especially helpful uh, for applications for the SES, uh, since part of the SES program, of course, is the opportunity for civil servant leaders to rotate among agencies. Um, so some options there are the President's Management Council Interagency Rotation Program, um, and that's uh, available already to all GS-13 and 15 employees. Um, and a model that might be adopted by other agencies is the Presidential Management Fellows Program Interagency Rotation. 
Um, and then finally, there's the opportunity to rotations, details, exchanges, what have you, outside of the federal government. So, of course, the, there's the Intergovernmental Personnel Act Mobility Program, which, of course, enables federal employees to do rotations in, in state government, local government, nonprofits, and academia. But there's also, uh, with some agencies, public-private talent exchange programs in which federal employees, civil servants, can do exchanges with private sector companies. Uh, currently, uh, the VA, DHS, DOD, and the um, Office of Director of National Intelligence have an exchange program. These programs do require congressional authority, so unfortunately they're not available uh, government-wide. But in a previous uh, uh, report that the partnership put out about talent exchanges uh, called Trading Places, uh, one of the recommendations we make is that Congress enact an authority that enables civil servants government-wide to participate in public-private talent exchange programs. There's a lot that we've talked about, a lot more that is contained in the report, but was there anything in your research or um, going through all of this um, to make this report, was there anything that was surprising to you or stood out to you as a final takeaway? Although I think the primary finding of a report is that retention strategies that are specific to particular populations of federal employees are going to be more effective than generic pro forma strategies. I do think it's also important to recognize that people of different generations um, are often more similar than different. And conventional wisdom suggests that there is a big difference between Gen X and Gen Z. Uh, my BuzzFeed quizzes suggest as much. But in our conversations, we found that there's a lot of overlap. And I think that's really important. And I think that speaks to the nature of public servants that I alluded to before. Gen Xers and Gen Zers, they're mission driven. They come to public service because they want to do good for their communities and their country. And they value good communication with their leaders, uh, respect within the office, uh, a reliable and consistent workplace, uh, supervisors who are accountable, opportunities to grow professionally, and working with colleagues who are competent. So these are all factors that I would say are universal retention factors. And while we focus on the differences more than the similarities in our report. I don't want to obscure the similarities and give the impression that uh, the difference between Gen X and Gen Z, older and younger civil servants, are so great as to not be divided. There's a lot of similarity there, and I think that should be kept in mind. Paul Peach, Senior Manager for Federal Workforce Research at the Partnership for Public Service. Speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI. 
and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.